Hello and welcome to Immunotea, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. Now, if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, let's get started and introduce our guest for the day, Dr. Angus Lavelle. Angus is a lecturer in the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience in University College Cork in Ireland and a researcher at APC Microbiome Ireland. He completed his training in gastroenterology, during which he undertook a PhD looking at the gut microbiota in ulcerative colitis. Subsequently, Angus worked as a clinical research fellow at the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Clinic in Cork University Hospital and at APC Microbiome Ireland, where he was involved with teams looking at the gut virome in IBD. This was followed by a prestige postdoctoral fellowship in Paris in the laboratory of Professor Harry Sokol, studying various aspects of the bacterial and fungal microbiome in health and disease. Angus, you are very welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Let's start with something nice and general. What is the microbiome? So what kind of microorganisms are involved and, and how many do we each have inside us? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very important question. I suppose we should probably talk about microbiomes because we don't just have um, one. And when we use the term microbiome, it very quickly just becomes a conversation about the gut microbiome. So we have uh, the gut microbiome, which is, you know, the one that most research has been done on. But we also, there's an important like urogenital microbiome, particularly the vaginal microbiome. There's uh, nasal and oral microbiomes. And of course, the skin microbiome. Um, and when you talk about each of those microbiomes, you're talking about different ecological niches. So the, the big first concept I suppose you have to get involved in is you have to think about microbiomes a little differently to eukaryotic complex multicellular organisms like humans, where it's more, um, more an ecological thing. So it's like people studying diversity and people working out in the fields or sampling microbes in lakes and stuff. So, so a lot of those concepts are there. And each habitat is very unique and has microorganisms that have kind of co-evolved with us to um, exploit these niches um, and usually to live, I would say, in harmony with us. And there's a kind of a mutualism or a mutual benefit. So that has led to um, this concept. um, It's kind of a somewhat controversial concept. I'm not sure if I I fully accept it, but of of the holobiome, which is like us plus our microorganisms and and uh, our collective sort of genomic uh, repertoire. But in general, I think you can just you can think more simply of them as just being specialized habitats with densely populated uh, communities. Just in terms of what makes them up, the majority of the work that we do and, and most of uh, the composition is bacterial. There's a lot of um, viruses as well, and, and viruses are dominated by bacteriophage, which are, are, are viruses whose hosts are bacteria. So these are viruses who, who live on the bacteria in our microbiome, have, have an important role in shaping it. Then we have fungi, which are very important. They're numerically not, not as great as bacteria or viruses, but they are 
physically much bigger. Um, so, so they might metabolically be more important. Um, and then we have archaea, which are a little, little, little different branch on the, on the evolutionary tree. Um, and, and they're important, particularly, particularly in the, in the gut, but there's not many of them. In terms of numbers, the most densely populated part of the microbiome is, is the colon. So about 97% of, of all of our microbiome is, is, is in our large intestine. So there was, there was this kind of common, um, idea initially that, that, there were maybe 10 times more microbial cells in our microbiomes than in our own body. That's been kind of revised down. So it's about, um, the numbers are about the same. Uh, so there's about as many, uh, so about 10 to the 13, nearly 10 to the 14 mi uh, microbial cells in our microbiomes and, and probably somewhat equivalent in our bodies. That's interesting. So Angus, what makes my microbiome or microbiomes different to yours? So yeah, I mean that's a great question, and and at the moment it it almost seems like everything. To be perfectly honest with you, um, the things that uh, the, one of the big things that's been a challenge for the field um is is getting on top of interpersonal or interindividual variability. So I'll, I'll probably default to talking about the gut quite a bit. Um, uh, there, there's somewhat similarities but limitations when 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 you um in 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 mapping these these things to all the other microbiomes. But we do see a lot. Of, of variability, and um, particularly in, in the gut microbiome between people, and that's due to where you're born. It's due to the environment you're exposed to. Um, it's due to people have been very interested in things like birth mode, whether you, you're born by cesarean section or by, by normal vaginal delivery. In your household, when you, at childhood, there's a lot of influence from like whether you have siblings or not, whether you have household pets, and then. I guess when when you when you talk about things like um, geography, you have to um, add diet to that. So diet's probably one of the biggest kind of structures or, or um, influencers on micro microbiome composition. So really, I suppose you might say from from birth, uh, the microbiome is uh, it gets seeded as we're being born. It's a somewhat controversial topic. Uh, again, uh, we could talk about it, but but generally, I think and I, I think. There's a recent paper just come out of Cork or uh, coordinated by Jens Walter in Cork that's shown that there isn't really any evidence for a prenatal microbiome or a placental or an in utero microbiome. So, so, so we think that you get seeded at birth and from the moment you're born, really, there's random chance, uh, there's the mode of delivery, there's the environment into which you're born, there's the household into which you move in, um, there's the surroundings, the number of people around you, the pets you have that are in the house, and then things like the diet you eat, the ge geographical location. So really, uh, it just start, starts to build on everything and it becomes, you know, extraordinarily complex. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a big influence of genetics on the microbiome. Um, so, so there's a kind of a number of studies that, that have shown that really it's in environment, diet, and things like that. So, environmental factors that 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 drive it. Very interesting study from Israel because Israel's recently founded, and and people um, came came to Israel just in the in the sort of 50s onwards from the second half of the 20th century from very different genetic backgrounds, people who had been separated over over many millennia. And then they came back and started to share a common environment. And in that study, they found that it was really um, environment that was driving it. It wasn't the, the genetic uh, differences. So I think you, you would say environment's probably the, the, the key thing. Angus, you, you touched on, you know, back as far as the 1950s there in Israel. I'm just wondering, has the microbiome changed over time? So, for instance, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, do we know was it different? And now in 2023, is it a, is it a whole new species? 
Yeah, I mean that, that's a that's a really interesting question. I suppose it also feeds into a little some of the things that that you as immunologists are interested in, like the hygiene hypothesis and so forth. There has been work on what we kind of think of as like ancestral microbiomes, uh, so microbiomes of like the Hasda or hunter gatherers and so forth. And also, we can kind of learn quite a bit from peoples who 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 eat diets maybe even not not needing to go to hunter gatherers but people who eat diets that are more um more ancestral and we see in the western world a, a big shift from the sort of microbiomes of fiber rich diets so if you look in africa um, where there's a, a higher uh, di habitual dietary fiber and lower, lower intake of, of dietary fats, you see a, a much more prevotella. Um, and there's this idea in, in microbiome of enterotypes. So these are kind of clusters of or denser regions that people tend to sort of orbit around. And so, so one of the enterotypes is, is prevotella. Now, again, that's also a con controversial topic. It seems some people say there are just gradients from one end of the spectrum to the other. Some people say that there's, there's enterotypes. But certainly, in, in places like Africa, you see a lot more uh, Prevotella, which is associated with a higher fiber diet. And as you move to the Western world, you see you get an increase in phyla, like firmicutes and other members of Bacteroidase, uh, which are more associated with, with diets based on animal proteins and so forth. There's also been a lot of really interesting work on loss of diversity. Uh, so the idea that diversity, loss of diverse alpha diversity, which is the uh, diversity we think of as, as being like how many different species do you have in your gut um, um, and how, how evenly balanced are they also. So a, a high diverse uh, ecosystem has a lot of different species and, and has a reasonable balance of them. And then a, a low diverse one would have would lose individual species or, or have a skewing towards dominance by certain members. And we tend to see this loss of microbiome diversity appears to be uh, compounded over generations. So Justin Sonnenberg, uh, has, uh, Justin Sonnenberg's lab has done some interesting work on that experimentally and shown that this does in fact happen and um, that that loss of diversity compounds over generations. Um, and, and there's a sort of a whole th thought process now on, on sort of extinction or microbiome extinction that, that we're losing key bugs. And as, as a result, we're losing um, key features and functions that 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 we've co-evolved with over over millennia and even further back i suppose so you mentioned loss of diversity how important is a diverse or healthy microbiome is that even a thing yeah uh, so so it's it's interesting you you talk about that i'm, I'm part here at apc microbiome ireland where i work as part of my role and um, we're involved in a European consortium called Human Microbiome Action, which is aiming to sort of improve microbiome research across, you know, I guess from the very basics of, you know, how we collect clinical data, how we store it, how we standardize processes. And um, so it's multiple work packages across Europe and different different partners. And we are, our work package, the one that we're running uh, with Professor Paul Ross, who's the director of APC, um, is uh, defining a healthy microbiome. Uh, so we actually had a workshop here in Cork where we got a um, bunch of kind of world experts on, on the microbiome uh, to come come to the Riverly in Cork and we discuss this. And it is very interesting. There's obviously no consensus. I mean, we, we don't really have a consensus on health to begin with, let alone um, a healthy microbiome. One of the things that I think is one of the discussions that was very interesting was, was whether we should define the health of the microbiome independently of the host. So we should just look, as you said, at 
metrics like alpha diversity, resilience. Um, so resilience being the ability of an ecological community to bounce back after a perturbation, which is a kind of a key metric of health, or whether we should define it purely as a, a function of the host. So if the, per the host is healthy, the microbiome is healthy. So we just take healthy individuals and assume that their microbiomes are healthy. And naturally, I think both situations were felt to be insufficient. Uh, you can think of people with a very stable microbiome, but it might be a bad microbiome, like an IBD microbiome or colorectal cancer, or even Clostridium difficile, which has in, in some respects a lot of a, a complete loss of microbiome health um, and diversity. But in, in other respects, I suppose it's, it's very, it's hard to shift. So, so resilience could be a, a pathogenic thing, but then a healthy person could also maybe have a potentially unhealthy microbiome. So we sort of, the, one of the, I suppose, initial decisions that, that came out was that we would try and combine both. Um, and so that there's um, the, there's a sort of a working definition of health. So, so we think of people who are generally healthy, who don't have any chronic disease. And then we think of microbiomes that meet certain criteria um, and that don't have any evidence of pathogens. And then I suppose with those working definitions, the field will hopefully progress and, and understand more across the cycle from uh, what defines a healthy microbiome to what defines the healthy host and sort of work in that way. There's no number I can give you to say this is how many bugs you need in your gut to be healthy. There's certainly no number. I mean, you know, if, you're, if you are sitting in clinic and someone comes in and says, oh, my alpha diversity is, my Shannon diversity index is, you know, 3.2. I'm told I don't have a diverse microbiome. There's nothing like that. We don't, we don't, we have no idea. And there are certain situations where diversity isn't e even a good thing. For instance, um, in, in infants, we see breastfed infants have the lowest diversity compared to, or lower diversity compared to bottle-fed infants. And that's because they have almost exclusively bifidobacterium, which has evolved to uh, metabolize human milk. Um, and, and so they, they have a low diversity um, microbiome, and that, that's, that's a good thing. Um, in the uh, vaginal microbiota as well, uh, we see that, that the, the, the healthy microbiome is relatively low diversity diverse um, and, and uh, bacterial vaginosis would be associated with, say, with an increase in diversity. So again, even within different niches, there's different understandings of what is good and, and, and what is bad, but, but there's, no, there's no benchmarks or cutoffs and it's, it's really an evolving area. Funny you bring up infants there because it strikes me that there must be a massive change. Obviously, you're suggesting that there's, you know, sterility when you're in utero up until all the way until you're elderly. Can you comment a little bit about that change, how, how we change from our childhood to our adulthood to our elderly microbiome? So from the, in, in childhood, really, it, there's sort of there's a big study called the Teddy study, which was which was published recently, which is predominantly researching diabetes um, and and the sort of the onset of, of diabetes. Uh, but they have a beautiful sort of picture of the microbiome changing in 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 over phases. And there's sort of there's the, basically the milk phase, if you like, and then there's the weaning sort of a transition phase, and then there's a, a, a switch over to a sort of an adult composition. And that switch to an adult-like composition occurs occurs quite early. So really by, it's, it's hard exactly to say, but two to three years of age, um, the microbiome has, has become adult-like um, as, as it's, it's, you know, pretty chaotic at the beginning and, and mostly bifidobacterium and some kind of slightly pro-inflammatory bacteria. And then once, once table food gets introduced, then it, it starts to take on that adult form. And it changes not maybe a huge amount throughout um, our adult life, I guess, assuming we maintain some sort of um, 
you know healthy diet or, or a stable diet and we don't get a disease or anything like that and um, but it, it it's pretty stable and also pretty um, recognizable usually if you you take two individuals and follow them over some time you can tell maybe a year apart that they're the same person by their microbiome so people tend to have wouldn't quite say a fingerprint but 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 they they do have certain characteristics now that being said there's a huge amount of fluctuation on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis and particularly in the abundance of of bacteria but does seem to orbit around some kind of central point then as we get older um and you know one of the pivotal studies that came came out in the field came from from apc and from from Polo Tools group back in, I think it was 2011 now, where they where they looked at the ElderMet cohort, uh, which is a cohort of, of people living, elderly people living in Cork. And they were able to very convincingly correlate loss of microbial diversity and loss of resilience and, and with habitual diet associated with where you were living. So if you were a community dwelling, eating your own food, you tended to have a more diverse and resilient diet. If you were sort of in a short short stay in a care home, um, it, it dropped down a bit. Or and then if you were long term um, in a long term care facility, you had had really low diversity, and that's associated, I suppose, with you know monotonous diet. Also associated with things like loss of dentition. So p- people tend to eat softer food, and um, some some loss of gastric acid, and 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 uh, you know alterations then in, in, as a result in in the microbiome. Uh, so so we do tend to see um, with age, and p- particularly with people in in care facilities and and uh, people who have illnesses and are on you know with polypharmacy and so forth we do see you can tend to see see diversity and this is a, a time when the microbiome consequently becomes quite vulnerable um, and that, that's why people you know you you people more vulnerable to clostridium difficile as a result of antibiotics and so forth um, and they also correlated those those changes with with them um, pro-inflammatory changes um, in the microbiome so so i suppose that's what you could say Big changes in the first year or two of life, and um, reaching a stable state fairly early, and then um, at the extremes of life, certainly um, changes happening in, in 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 elderly patients or in elderly people will tend to be a bit more vulnerable as they get older. Can you tell me a bit about how the microbiome is involved in diseases, maybe such as colorectal cancer or inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I started, and even to this day, one of the one of the big things that, that that everyone always said was well you know the disease is there it alters the microbiome so it's just you know chicken and egg so for instance i suppose a simple model that you can understand in in inflammatory bowel disease as you get inflammation in the gut uh, you get increased um oxygen uh levels in the gut so that that anaerobic um, that strict uh, anaerobic wall between the host and the, and the gut is 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 broken down to some degree, um, and as a result, then you get a bloom in um, E. coli. So E. coli are members of the gut microbiota; they're commensals, um, but they are they're not generally thought of being particularly beneficial, um, and so they expand, and so you get this generic expansion of 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 these bacteria but as they expand then you get a, a kind of a contraction of other microbes um, and so the microbiome is now producing less short chain fatty acids less tryptophan metabolites and so forth and um, it's not doing its job as well um, and so it's it's more likely to incite a more pro-inflammatory response in the host um, and so this then becomes kind of a vicious cycle uh, and so for many of the conditions that the microbiome has been implicated in there's been this you know a 
trying to figure out how does this happen. Um, and so in, in inflammatory bowel disease, it's still being re it's still quite challenging uh, to know exactly what uh, what the sequence of events is. My postdoc supervisor Harry uh, Sokol published probably the most influential paper in in IBD, um, where he they discovered uh, that loss of a commensal called Fecalobacterium presnitzii, which is a, a key um, short chain fatty acid producer and also has anti-inflammatory effects. It was associated with with Crohn's disease, and uh, there's there's general idea that there's lack of of many of these very beneficial uh, clostridia and um, things like Roseburia, Eubacterium rectale. These are just very these very highly evolved um, to live in our gut, produce beneficial metabolites and um, type bacteria, um, and then associated with a gain in certain not so good bacteria um, like things like E. coli or Shigella, things like um, Ruminococcus navis, which is in the sort of firmicutes, uh, which, which which has a lot of the beneficial ones, but is generally thought of as being a negative one. And with expansions also in members of um, Bacteroides. And then more recently, it's been a really interesting study from from Elena Verdu, who's who's a who's a brilliant researcher in Canada, um, and they they did one of those things which you know researchers they think that things are impossible and then someone does them and they're like oh why that's what we should have done all along so they got siblings of patients with i think it was crohn's disease but it, it could just have been ibd and followed them up because they knew the incidence of the disease is, is is far too rare to just capture it from the general population but if you have a sibling with it you're more likely to get it so they followed people up siblings of patients with, with IBD, I think it was Crohn's, and they got a cohort of people before they developed ulcerative colitis. And they actually found a, a bacteria in, in a subset of them, Bacteroides vulgatus, which is a proteolytic, which encodes proteases. Um, and, and proteases are generally not the kinds of things you want a lot of in your gut. Uh, they're associated with um, uh, irritable bowel syndrome and, and IBD. Um, and these protease encoding or producing Bacteroides vulgatus seem to be associated with the prodrome before patients got ulcerative colitis. And then they did germ-free models and proved that that these microbiomes um, had increased protease activity and and my, mouse models of IBD were more severe. So so there's there's I suppose to answer your question more generally there's there's a sort of a, a change in the microbiome that happens with with inflammation which probably feeds back on the inflammatory process in IBD and then there may also be things that actually promote its um, incidence or promote its starting. The case with uh, colorectal cancer is, is is quite different. There's a one big bacteria that's been um, uh, associated with colorectal cancer, which is Fusobacterium nucleatum, uh, and it is. Uh, but there's there's a, a other ones as well. A lot of them are oral cavity bacteria, so they're bacteria which um, kind of are, I suppose are intuitively it makes sense because there, there's a lot of biofilms in the oral cavity on plaque and so forth. And so these are are kind of polymicrobial organisms that sort of get together on a and make a biofilm. Um, and so Fusobacterium nucleatum is, is one of these bugs and it has numerous mechanisms that can drive um, carcinogenesis. It, it, it activates um, wind signaling. Uh, it has a special binding protein that, that activates wind signaling. Um, it alters the um, milieu of the cancer microenvironment, so it makes it more pro-inflammatory um, and uh, also sort of silences immune surveillance. These are like four or five different mechanisms. Uh, so, so, so in the case of uh, the microbiome in colorectal cancer, uh, it's, it's even got to the stage now where people are looking at biomarkers to uh, enhance fit testing. And it looks like some of these, these uh, microbiome biomarkers might actually help with diagnosing and uh, with non-invasive diagnosis. Um, and 
there's there's also like Fusobacterium is a great researcher from from Cork. I, I think she did her her PhD here in, in uh, CIT um, and is now in Fred Hutch in in uh, the United States. Susan Susan Bullman and and she discovered that Fusobacterium actually travels with cancer mets, um, so that they were in the liver, um, and uh, which is a really huge study that was that was published a number of years ago. So they might affect response to chemotherapy as well. Um, so so there's a number of things from diagnosis up to, all the way up to um, prognosis and therapeutics where where Fusobacterium uh, might might have a role. Uh, so really interesting in 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 both uh, in in both IBD and 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 uh, colorectal cancer. So you said the microbiome is implicated in a wide range of conditions. Can we talk about the role it may play in the response to cancer immunotherapy? Sure. Yeah. Um, so this is this is this is probably one of the one of the I guess most interesting areas um, at, at at the moment, and 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 maybe something that a lot of people didn't predict or were surprised at initially. The I think the the role you know. They always say that most of your immune, I don't know if they, do they use the term 70% or something, but a lot of your immune cells are in your gut anyway. Um, I suppose we think of, uh, and you, 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 you will know more about this than I do, I suppose, or immunologists and the mucosal immune system and as, as in the gastrointestinal tract has been somewhere where this balance between sort of sense tolerance and, and um, activity or, or effector functions is, is, is constantly being tweaked a little bit. And in fact, one of the, the coolest studies I think that that came out was um, uh, it's not exactly related to checkpoint inhibitors, but w- was the studies from Dan Lipman's group where they showed that uh, TH17 uh, responses were different in different in mice from different vendors. So the one of them, Jackson Farms, had no TH17. Uh, cells, I think, and uh, the Taconic or Jackson Labs and Taconic Farms had had loads of them, and they they found it was this bacteria, these this class of bacteria called segmented filamentous bacteria. So so just one bacteria in mice, anyway, it hasn't been shown in humans yet, but one bacteria in mice is crucial to the appropriate development of Th17 cells in in mice. So. It's it's probably should be no surprise, I guess, when you think about the amount of contact that that the microbiome can maybe have an influence on setting the tone of the immune system, this general background tone. And so there's been a lot of work over time, predominantly on in mouse models, um, uh, but but more recently also in, in human studies, looking at the the microbiome in or cancer therapy and or immunogenic type cancer therapy um, uh, and uh, the microbiome um, and recognitions that antibiotics can some, somehow sometimes worsen the effect of certain either immune checkpoint inhibitors or um, chemotherapy that has an immune, immunogenic um, type 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 response. I think oxaliplatin and, and some other ones that were, were some of the initial and cyclophosphamide were some of the initial experimental um, studies uh, where they, you know, they showed that chemo plus Vancomycin resulted in 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 large larger tumor volume and and general um, antibiotics led to a worsening of of response. So this as well started to point people towards the the potential of the the microbiome to be involved in response to to checkpoint inhibitors. Since then, there there since those initial studies, then there's been a lot of interest with checkpoint inhibitors, and they've, they've almost all the publications seem to have been published in Science. And uh, there's there's a big group in MD Anderson and and some in in Paris and Lauren. Zitvogel's group, um, but they've shown 
fairly convincingly that the microbiome is different between responders and non-responders. And then they've been able to use these germ-free mice models transferring um, doing FMTs from responders and non-responders into, into um, mouse models of cancer or melanoma. And they've been able to show that, that, the, the, that they can replicate or recapitulate this response. Um, and that's kind of culminated in, in uh, two studies that were published in Science in 2021, I think, where they did uh, fecal microbiota transplantation from patients who responded to non-responders, um, and showed uh, in, in in both studies that that there was uh, there was an improvement in in some of the patients. So you could rescue non-response by giving an FMT from from a responder, um, and so there's been a couple of um, studies one of the problems with the with the cohort studies is it's been very it's been a bit hard to pin down exactly which bugs are doing it because they seem to be different different cohorts so this harks back to what i was saying about the microbiome being different between geographical regions and so forth and um, there's a lot of interest in in one of these good bugs a bug that that everyone's interested in now is a sort of a next generation probiotic called Acromancia mucinophila. Um, and that, that seems to have shown, shown a lot of promise as a potential bug that, that might be almost a probiotic to improve response. And also some, some, some interest in, in bifidobacterium as well. So, so certain bugs seem to increase baseline immune tone and support the effect of um, checkpoint inhibitors. And it's a really interesting uh, space. There's a whole other side of it then when it comes to colitis and checkpoint inhibitor response, colitis and modulating the microbiome for that, which which is is, is maybe something a little bit different. Uh, but I think you're going to see a lot about it in the coming years. I feel like you've touched on it a little bit there, Angus, with the fecal microbiota transplantation and some talk about antibiotics. But I suppose really the big question is how can we manipulate the microbiome for better or for worse? Should we all be taking probiotics? And also, do you think that maybe the commercialization of microbiome treatments has strayed away from the evidence base? I'll answer your last question first and say yes, 100%. <laughs> it's it's ludicrous. Like, you know, people are constantly telling me that that they're being brought reports from companies and, and people are getting their microbiome sequenced and you know, it's it's just just no one knows what it means. So so there's there's nothing um do not don't do it if anyone's listening and you're tempted to do it, don't do it. If if you get the opportunity to be involved in a clinical study or in a research study, you know, please do. That would be wonderful. Uh, but it, we, we don't know that. And you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of it has, um, has really strayed from the evidence base, or even if there is an evidence base, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure in many cases there is. For probiotics, there are very limited indications. Uh, I think really diarrhea, maybe diarrhea post-antibiotics, there's some, a little bit of evidence, um, there was a study published in that came out of Israel where they kind of controversially said that 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 probiotics did nothing to improve response to uh, or, or rebuilding up of the microbiome after antibiotics. But they used sort of it was it's a very good study. They just used slightly atypical um, probiotics. Um, but in general, we we this was the the mantra in microbiome circles and in microbiology is is not to think about probiotics as as an umbrella term any more than you think of medicines but to think about specific probiotics for specific indications so you know if there's been a study um and the study has shown that there's some benefit you know, bifidobacterium infantis or whatever for for IBSD or VSL number three for pouchitis or something like that, that there are specific conditions where there might be specific indications. Um, and, and you should, you know, 
you, you should think about it in that way. Um, and the number of indications for for standard probiotics is very very limited. <laughs> um, we do try them um, when when you know in 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 patients you know with gastrointestinal uh, symptoms or uh, sometimes in in patients as I mentioned conditions like pouchitis and so forth and there, there can be some logic there um but it, it it has to be done with the understanding that it's that even in every but every person is done in it's sort of an experimental an experimental thing um and and i know i don't think we should all be taking probiotics at all we should all be eating a healthy diet with lots of you know raw nuts and unprocessed food and i'll probably drink less alcohol um and uh, a little bit avoiding like a lot of emulsifiers, artificial sweeteners, things like that. Yeah, but it's, it's really it's really diet and getting exercise. So it's really all the same general advice about, about a good, good balanced diet, not too much red meat um, and, 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 and uh, you know, general healthy advice that, that the, the microbiome benefits from. So finally, Angus, what's coming down the line from you? What should we be watching out for in the next few years with the gut microbiome? What are you excited for? Yeah, I think for for in general, I think the the question, and again, we kind of touched on it, but also skirted a little bit. Um, fecal microbiota transplant. Um, I think that um, I don't, I I'm I'm not being negative about probiotics or anything like that, but I think that fecal microbiota transplant is one end of a spectrum, and then you have sort of standard first generation probiotics. Your lactic acid bacteria type probiotics. Um, so there's going to be a lot of interest in in complex consortia of microbes to treat illnesses and there's a um one i think just got its first positive study or or I, I, maybe its first license i can't quite remember for for treatment of c diff so th these would be um gut commensals or gut um, bacteria that are um beneficial um, that have been given as a consortium and have been given in clinical trials for specific indications. So going coming somewhere back from FMT where it's just this sort of unselected from a donor with, with a lot of a lot of uncertainty as to what's going to engraft and, and, and what's there and whether everything is good or not, uh, that you would have more rational selection. And I think that the development of both fecal microbiota transplant for conditions like inflammatory bowel disease where it has shown some promise um, and also the combination of things like fecal microbiota transplant with dietary manipulation um, I think will be interested interesting in selected um, situations I think what we spoke about everything you spoke about and asked me about I think uh, the story and checkpoint inhibitors is, is really incredible um, and more generally the idea of the microbiome being a, a marker or a a prognostic indicator for response to certain certain treatments, and um, particularly immune immune based treatments, um, and then it's used as as a diagnostic uh, tool, um, specifically for things like like uh, sporadic colorectal cancer. Or my own interest is is colitis associated cancer, which is a bit more niche, but um, uh, th that's that's kind of where I'd be. Um, and then I think really nutritional research and microbiome research coming together and, and trying to do things properly at scale um, uh, looking at the nutritional and microbiome research kind of together knitted together as as one thing i think it's going to be really interesting and um, in terms of maybe more basic stuff um uh, i i'm very interested to see the the big studies big surveys the big national microbiome projects and particularly from regions of the world that have been completely neglected like um africa 
um, to, a, to, to a large degree, South America as well, parts of Asia. Um, so, so really just like democratizing it a little bit and, and getting the, the cheaper sequencing out there and seeing these big projects come on board and really trying to understand the sort of global level of diversity, uh, I think will be, will be fascinating. Yeah. Dr. Angus Lavelle from University College Cork and APC Microbiome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the, the great chat. Wow, that was just so great. He's really involved in such amazing research. I think one of the things that actually really caught my attention there was that the idea of the two identical mice that came from different breeding facilities and one of the mice had this complete inability to produce TH17 cells, an entire set of cells, simply because of the absence of one single strain of bacteria. I genuinely didn't know that the microbiome could be that important in something so fundamental in immunology. I agree. That's fascinating. And it's always nice to have some myths busted. Like we've all heard that there are 10 times as many microorganisms than human cells in everyone's body. So that's not true. And also that we don't all need to be taking daily probiotics. It is actually really reassuring to hear that. I suppose I, I couldn't actually believe when he said there's only the same amount of microorganisms as there are cells in our body because it is so ingrained in us to believe otherwise. But God, amazing to, to hear all that information and obviously bust those myths. I guess that brings another episode to an end. And as usual, before we go, Vianca, what have you got in store for us this time around? <laughs> well, to be topical, I've got a microbiology joke. Oh, brilliant. Shoot. Okay, so what people have the best microbiomes? I don't know what people have the best microbiomes. Germans. <laughs> okay, that's actually really good. <laughs> well, I've got another. I, I should have known. Okay, fire away. Okay, so a bacteria walks into a bar. The barman says, you can't be in here. The bacteria says, no, it's okay. I'm staff. <laughs> that's actually brilliant as well you have done amazingly well today okay that's enough from us for today if you do want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com that's immunotea spelled i-m-m-u-n-o-t-e-a podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us at immunotea don't forget that's t-e-a we'd like to thank our guest today dr angus lavelle our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. Thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.